you know, we talk about the end times, and sometimes believers can express their desire, like we talked about a few moments ago, for the return of the Lord, um, because they're just weary and tired and discouraged, and maybe all those things might, might be where you are right now. And God understands that. But the purpose of looking at all of this and looking at the, the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ is to uh, is not for resignation, but for inspiration. Resignation is to say, okay, things are so bad and they're getting worse, and we know that they on this earth they will. And we can just resign and say, I'm sick of it, I want out of here. Well, although we're ready for it to come to an end and we long for it, while we are here, though, we want to have the Spirit-filled disposition that to live, though, is Christ. And for Him to come back, whether it's through death or through rapture, for those of us who are alive at the time, or if we're alive at the time of the rapture, is gain. But while we're here, we're going to um, die to self, Take up our cross, follow Jesus, so that He's seen and known through our words and our deeds. As a witness and a light, as He grows us in Him, as Christ is formed in us. So it's not resignation, it's inspiration. And the inspiration of the Scriptures, where we get our lifeblood, where we get our hope, where it's anchored. If it's not anchored here, then it will trigger anxiety and fear. That's almost identical to the world's anxiety and fear. People are anxious, people are afraid, and they have reason to be. And we don't want to quell that fear, we want to make them understand it. So that they understand that judgment is coming, but yet God made a way. And He made a way through His dear Son. So let's look at it, and if you will, in honor and respect for God's precious Word, stand with me as we read it, if you will. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. To all things that he saw, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from... Him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood and has made us kings and priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. That's the word of the living God. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. We went through and started a journey through Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, and we suspended it. We've come back to it. Just as a preview of coming attractions to kind of calibrate your thinking, we observed this and we held on to it 
throughout our study the first time, and God willing, we'll do this again. But even though we didn't read this verse this morning as part of that passage, it's in the first chapter, and I just want you to give you a heads up that the general outline of the book of, Re- the, book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ is found in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, and it's chapter 1, verse 19. And in verse 19 it says, Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. That forms the outline of the book. The first chapter, John's writing to us what he has seen. In chapters 2 and 3, in the messages to the seven churches, he's writing of things that are. In, a verse, in chapters 4 through verse uh, chapters 22, he's writing the things that will take place. So chapter 1, this is what you've seen, write that down. Chapters 2 and 3, the things which are. Chapters 4 through 22, the things which will take place. We need to grow in our understanding of the fact that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. We can look at this like we talked about last week. And we think of the revelation of Jesus Christ, and we're trying to train ourselves to say it that way. Not just call it revelation or the revelation, but to call it the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the name of the book. And the emphasis needs to be there because that's what the emphasis of the book is. And we can look at it and go, oh, that's about things to come. That's about prophecy. That's about end times. And indeed it is. But it's not the subject matter. The subject matter is Jesus in the end times. The subject matter is Jesus. That's always the case. Think how much that is true when you think about, and go with me in chapter uh, 9 of the Gospel of Luke, if you do that with me for just a moment. In chapter 9 in the Gospel of Luke, this is Luke's account of the transfiguration. After Christ sets forth the true cost of discipleship in verses 23 through 26, Verse 27, he says something that we have to pause and reflect on. He said, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. And you think, wait a minute now. We know that a couple thousand years has transpired since this happened. And his audience was the disciples that were following him. And we know they tasted death and Jesus has yet to come again. So how is it that he could say to them that you're not, before you die, you're going to see the kingdom of God? Well, we know in verse 28 and following in the account, it says, Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered. And his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in the glory and spoke of his decease, departure, in other words, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So, here's how we understand that. Jesus said that you're going to, there are some of you, that you're not going to die until you see the kingdom of God. He takes three of them up to the Mount of Transfiguration and shows them the kingdom of God. And I think the point is this. We understand the kingdom of God as if it's a kingdom that Christ is over. And it is a kingdom that Christ is over. But dear ones, here's how we need to understand the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is Jesus Christ. He showed them all of His glory. The kingdom of God is entered into 
mediated, controlled, appreciated, and servitude happens inside the kingdom of God in Christ. Just like Jesus when He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by Me. We talk about this. Jesus does not just tell us truth. He is truth. Jesus does not just point us to the way. He is the way. Jesus does not just give life. He is life. And Jesus is the kingdom of God. So these three out of the twelve got to see the kingdom of God before they died. When He transfigured Himself before Him several days after He had told them He was going to do that. See, we're not introducing people to a philosophy that has challenged us. We are introducing people to a person who has changed us. We need to understand that. There seems to be some intellectual gymnastics going on in Christian circles where we just view the Christian faith as if it were some philosophical way to look at things. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a reasonable exercise. And we can use that reason to change the mind of somebody who doesn't even have a mind that's capable of receiving it. The Word of God and the power of the Gospel is not in the Word of the Gospel only. It's in the power that that Word brings. We need to press into the fact that this is about Jesus. It is to introduce people to Jesus, to link to Jesus, not just to be fond of a new way of thinking that seems to satisfy their intellectual appetites. The reason that's so important is we've fallen into a trap, I'm afraid, in Christian circles where our witness has been weakened because we feel like the gospel itself is not strong enough for transformation. we got to shore it up with human arguments to support it. That is not true. We need to share the gospel from the Word of God confident that it is Christ who saves. And salvation is Christ. It's not about Christ. It is not about a plan. It's about a man and his name is Jesus Christ. Does it stand up to philosophical argument? Does it stand up to reason? Absolutely. Absolutely. But human wisdom and human understanding is foolishness to God powerful witness is the simple witness of God's sending His Son as the innocent substitute to die in our place and that life is found in Him, not just because of Him. So, in essence, on, in this book, we get to see Jesus transfigure Himself just as surely as they got to see it when He's still on that mountain. If we'll look at this book that way, we'll appreciate the sequence of events that are going to happen in in, end times. We will anticipate them. But our interest in them will be different. It's not just that we want to know how it's going to turn out. We long to see Him. We long to see Him. It's Him that we want to see. It's turning our eyes on Jesus, looking full in His wonderful face. And surely the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. So I'm going to outline this, and I don't know how far we're going to get to this today. Behold your King. And first I want us to see the Prince. Next I want to see the Purchase Price. Next the Praise. Then the Piercing. Then the Proclamation. And then the Practical Application. We're probably not going to get through all of that, but we'll start anyhow where the Scriptures start. The Prince. Look at it. 
verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. You could just very well say two household of faith in Kennesaw, Ackworth, Marietta, Dallas, Canton, whatever, Georgia. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. Grace and peace. Grace is unmerited favor. And it is through God's unmerited favor that we are now have peace with God and we can have the peace of God. And we can quit trying to work for anything. When you know that you have grace and grace is what motivates you, you never work again for anything. To attain favor with God? Why? You already have it. And so you've got to keep it. Well, then it's no longer grace, is it? And we've got people scrambling around trying to make God think more of them and trying to make God accept them when in Christ they already are accepted. We're trying to get what we already have. And the reason we can't enjoy what we already have is because we're over there trying to get what we already have. And so we get out of the prison and Jesus lets us out and we start looking down the hallway and pretty soon a legalist will come along and go, Ah! Get back in there! Serve your time! And then we go, you know what? Fooey on that. Jesus served my time. I'm free. You can get back in there if you want to, and I hope not. But I'm here to tell you, you're not going to keep me there. You can just know that. We have grace and peace in Jesus. He's the prince. Now, who is he? I want you to emphasize the four, the three. There are three froms here. Now, I'm looking at the New King James Version. It might be a little bit different in yours. I don't know. We see the Trinity, the Prince. From Him who is and who was and who is to come, God the Father. And from the seven spirits who are before His throne, God the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, God the Son. From God the Father. From God the Holy Spirit. From God the Son. We know God to be one, but He's three persons in one. He's not one person comprised of three different parts. He's three wholes that comprise one. If you can explain that, then take some time and come up here and I'll give it to you. But I can't explain that, neither can you, but we can receive it. If you're waiting for your understanding to be your authority, you're in lots of trouble and so am I. My understanding is not my authority. The Word of God is my authority. Whether I understand that or not. How we try to downsize God and humanize Him and make Him fit in our little categories. Forgive us for doing that, Lord. God, here He is. Here He is in all of His glory. We know that God the Father, He's the one who was, the one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come. He has no beginning and He has no end. Everybody else has a beginning with no end. God has no end and no beginning. There again, if you you can understand that, then share with us so we can get our arms around it too. It's amazing. God's in a category all His own. The eternal, existing, eternally one. And then it says the seven spirits. This is the prince. This is He. This is God. The seven spirits who are before His throne refers to the Holy Spirit. Now look at Revelation chapter 4. And get your Bibles and get ready because we're going to turn into several places, God willing. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 5. We see the Holy Spirit spoken of again. And it says, And from the throne, the throne of God, 
proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. The word, the number seven speaks of God, speaks of divinity, it speaks of completion. God alone is complete and self-sufficient and needs nobody else for His existence to sustain His existence. He is the pre-existing one. He is self-sufficient in all things. He doesn't need anything. And then we look at Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. That's why we can know that we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And because we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we have all of God that we want. I believe in the second blessing. I believe in the third blessing, the fourth blessing, the fifth, the sixth, seventh, eighth, all the way to infinity. Because all of those blessings come when we begin to realize and appropriate by faith what we received in the first blessing. And Jesus is enough. Amen? You'll recall in the tabernacle, this is pictured for us. You remember the lampstand in the tabernacle? The lampstand in the tabernacle has a stem in the middle and on either side on, uh, there are three um, um, what do you call them? Just lost my train thinking. Three candle holders. Three holders on either side with one in the middle. That's the picture of the Holy Spirit. That's the seven spirits of God. You'd be interested in knowing that in Romans chapter 12 are set for us motivational spiritual gifts and there are seven of them. Rosanna was just telling me last night. She said, I can't explain it, but I just get a, I get great joy out of serving people and went on to explain. I said, because you have the gift, you have a gift and more, I'm sure, but you have a gift of service. It's the Holy Spirit that makes you want to do that. That's one of the seven gifts. That's the gifts so this is the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, it talks about the seven spirits of the Holy Spirit. We'll not look there right now. We've looked there before. So we see that the lampstand is lit up. And what does the lampstand light up? The lampstand in the tabernacle, in the holy uh, place, lights up the table of showbread that's just across from it. And the reason it lights up the table of showbread is across from it is Jesus is the bread of life. He was born in Bethlehem, which means house of bread, and He was broken for our sins and our iniquity. Praise God. Hallelujah. And the only way anybody ever knows that and begins to appropriate by faith the salvation that that brings is through the illumination of the Holy Spirit on that, pictured in that candle. This is the written Word giving testimony to the living Word. And then we see Jesus Christ, the Prince, the faithful witness. We see His offices here as well. He's prophet. He's priest. He's king. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. The Bible says He's the faithful witness. That's the prophet. He is the priest, the firstborn from the dead. He's the priest. The one who was dead has been raised as a father's right hand. And the Bible says, ever lives to make intercession for us. A priest not like the earthly priesthood where priests had a tendency to die. We have an eternal priest who will never die, who's our advocate forever. What is your problem this morning? What's mine? And then he's king because the Bible says he's prince of the kings of all the earth. Don't get nervous about political change. Don't be nervous about administration changes. Don't be nervous about any of that because God is sovereign over all of it. The next president of the United States will be the president that God has already selected. 
the voters that have no the voters might exercise our right, and that's good for us to do that. But we exercise our right and affirm the results are from God, not the electoral college. God will raise up. God will bring down. He does it all at His discretion because Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then the writer cannot help but do what we ought to be doing every day because when truth is received and applied by faith like a child, not childish, but childlike faith, you know what it does? It makes us break out in doxology. Look what he says. So we see the prince and now we see the praise. Look at it. To Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. The emphasis there is, if God just washed us from our sins, that would be great. That would be great if God just said, I'm going to wash you from your sins, but it is the means by which He does it that evokes the praise. He did it with the blood of His Son. He didn't just say, gee, I'm just going to overlook things. We know God better than that. He's a just God. He can't overlook sin. No sin ever goes unpunished. It's just an issue of who's going to take it. The unrepentant will be punished themselves. For me and you, we settled out of court. Jesus took it. Amen! Hallelujah. And so what does He do? He breaks out in what we would call a doxology. That word means a hymn, a verse, or a form of words in Christian liturgy that glorify God. That's what happens to us. The gospel writers, Paul did this all the time. He'd just break out. All of a sudden he'd be talking about what he received in Christ, what God had done for us in His Son, and the glories that that has meant for us and means for us eternally. The mercy that God's extended by not giving us what we don't deserve, what we do deserve, and in grace by giving us what we don't deserve. And he got so excited about it, right in the middle of the text, he'd go, Hallelujah! And that's exactly what John does here. Matter of fact, there are four of them in Revelation. There are four doxologies. This guy was happy about his faith. And dear ones, we should be too. You know what? Proper theology leads to doxology. If it doesn't lead to doxology, it's not proper theology. I can't say that again. If you, and I've told you this before, I've had people in sharing the gospel hear, give a faithful hearing of the gospel and say that sounds too good to be true. And my takeaway from that is, is they must have some understanding of what I just said. Because it does sound too good to be true. You mean to tell me that repenting, which means to simply agree with God, I'm as sorry and as wretched and as sinful as God says I am, and that God, by trusting in His Son, will forgive my sin, take away my guilt, eternally secure me with a relationship with Him, let me serve Him forever, and give me life that nobody else can take away, all is a gift. That sounds too good to be true. But you know what? It's true. Hallelujah. Aren't you grateful that's true? That you don't have to work for your salvation? That you can't work to be saved? You can't be worked to be, you can't stay saved by being. And what did God do? What was the means by which He cleansed us? You know, the word there is luo. It means the word washed. And you know what it means? It means loosening the dirt. It means it's taken off and it's gone. God separates it. The blood has a twofold purpose in the body. It takes nourishment to the body and then takes the, the, the uh, trash away from it. And that's a supernatural thing, that it can do those two things. It can take, it can give nourishment, 
and then it can take away. The same thing that feeds your body is like a trash truck. So we have the truck that comes with wholesome food that Tammy can tell us about that feeds us. And that same truck takes the trash and removes it and it turns around and as clean as it can be is filled up with the good stuff and takes it to us. And that's what the blood of Jesus Christ did for you and I. He took all the junk and then turned around and gave us His righteousness. That is the reason that Paul... That was the, that was the core message of Paul to the Ephesian elders. It was this, Greg. It was this. Okay, here's the deal. When I leave, they're going to be charlatans that sneak in among you. They're going to be evil people that come in among you. And they're going to be, in other words, they're going to be wolves in sheep's clothing. And they're going to try to mess up the church. You can't say that I didn't warn you because I warned you. He said, you better take care of God's flock. And what motivation do they need? The only one that is necessary. Whom he purchased with his own blood. Just a little general reminder. You better be serious about this. Because these people mean so much to God that He offered up His Son and spilled His blood on Calvary in order to make Him His. That's all the holy fear I ought to need. Isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, in other words, tell, give me a suggestion about something else sort of motivate a pastor to be kind and loving toward a church than that. Just that one reminder. These people, let me tell you my disposition toward them. Let me tell you what I think of them. They're so precious to me that I took my son and stripped him naked and put him on a street trash heap outside the streets of Jerusalem, publicly shamed him and took everything they'd ever done wrong and put it on him and punished him as if he had done it and shed his blood to cleanse every last one of them and eternally secure them. That's what I think of them. And you better have that kind of disposition when you are called upon by me to stand between them and the wolves and protect them. What other motivation do you need? And what does He do? What other motivation do we need to break out in praise? To Him who loved us. Some of you have NIV in here. And I like it better, to be honest with you. And of course, it doesn't care what I like. But in the NIV rendering of this, and by the way, this is a large print NIV Bible. I can read it from where Eric's standing. And it says, To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood. It doesn't talk about love in the past tense. It talks about an ongoing love, which is the, what I can tell, the best I can tell, the best rendering of this verse. Who not just loves it, loved us, but who loves us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. In this is love, that Christ laid down His life for our sins. Praise His name. There are four doxologies like we talked about. Doxa, first part of that word, means glory, praise. Logos means a speaking. It means a speaking of praise, whether it's by music, whether it's you know the doxology that we sing. Dan remembers that throughout his childhood, I'm sure. We take up the offering in a typical Baptist church, and I love it. And we go, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. I know I butchered the tune, but it's okay. Because that's an overflow of the heart that says, God, thank you for doing that for me. 
Thank you for doing that for me. What other response is there? Can you think of one? To hold back my life and say, God, you can have parts of it, but not all of them. You know, you come in here and live in my house. And you can go in the living room. You can go in the kitchen. You can go in the... But there's some rooms in the back that you don't have access to. And I'd just appreciate if you'd stay out of it. Then we don't have an understanding of what we've... That's a proper... That's, that's an improper th- understanding of theology. And an improper understanding of theology leads to little or no doxology. And little or no doxology leads to no consecrated living. Amen? Theology leads to doxology. He did it again. He did it in chapter 4, verse 11. Look at it. I'm just going to do these for the fun of it. This is just fun as all this is. Look at this. Oh man, the way he puts it. (laughs) 4.11. He breaks out again. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. He breaks out again. Chapter 5, verse 13. Every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them are heard saying, Blessed, blessing and honor and glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever. And ever. Then in chapter 7, verses 11 and 12, it says, All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen! Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. You realize the unworthiness of us, the worthiness of Christ, and the gap that He spanned to reach and redeem us through no less than His own blood to make us servants forever that He can manipulate and use as puppets. No, look what it says to make us kings and priests to His God and Father. To Him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. The Bible says, We who once not have received mercy have now received mercy. We who once were not the people of God are now the people of God. Amen. And we who once were in darkness are now in light. And God has made us a kingdom of priests. Some of you send in prayer requests and I alluded to it earlier you know pastors only I know why you do that there's just some things that you know don't, don't need to go out there that's okay that's fine that's great but I know why I know I know you do that just to inform because you know that it's going to stay with us and we'll talk to Jesus along with you I'll tell you why you don't do it you don't do it because you think I got better access to God than you do because I don't none of you think that you know better than that there's one mediator between God and man. It's the man, Christ Jesus. Amen. And I have you have just as much access to Him as I have to Him. I don't. Have, my prayers are not... God takes more delight in the prayer of a pastor or any spiritual leader than He does in the prayers of any saint that belongs to Him. You're a kingdom priest. You have access to God. You have credentials. You have a standing in grace. Everything you need to get backstage, you got credentials to get on the stage. 
to approach the very throne of God that's written up in this revelation. And we can do it together. Amen. And it's all because of this prince who is God, the Son. Hallelujah to His name. He's prophet, He's priest, the King. Nobody can do all three. Men try to do it. You know, we try to form governments so that Jesus can rule them. But it never happens. It's never going to square. It's just not going to square. It's just not going to do it. It's not going to do it. Only Jesus is sovereign and mediates and orders a divine kingdom in which there is no sin, in which He alone is prophet, priest, and king. Hallelujah. Amen. The purchase price paid by the prince himself. The praise that comes from that. I want you to know, you get down and out and downcast, go read the first first three chapters of Ephesians. I recommend that strongly to you. Just go read it. Or maybe the couple of first chapters of Colossians. Or maybe uh, the first 11 chapters of Romans. And you read what God says about you now in His Son. And you'll be lifted out of that mess. You'll come out of that Paul. You'll come out of the fog. And you'll start praising Him. And you'll start rejoicing over everything He's done and what He stands to do. And you will stand your ground firm. Don't go to other sources. It's okay. There are other places we go. There's plenty of access we have to praise music nowadays. I know that. That's great. I know you all are blessed by it. That's great. That's wonderful. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But I can tell you this, there's nothing, there's no substitute for taking God's Word, appropriating it by faith, and then you praising Him from what He's just told you. You've got to care to look and then receive it. Don't let the devil talk you out of it. You see the purchase price, the praise that comes from it, and now we see the pierced one. The pierced one. Look what it says. Behold, He is coming. With the clouds and every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. Even so, Amen. He is coming. Hallelujah. We cannot even scratch the surface and go through the Bible. and We couldn't do that this morning. We don't have time. Of the number of times that this is spoken of in the Scriptures... It's all over the place. But look at Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. This is what was the launching pad for where we are now. It says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low, the crooked places shall be made straight, the rough places smooth, and look what it says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. God's saying, you know what? Everybody is going to see the coming of my son. How can you know that? Because I said it. That's enough, isn't it? Then Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Turn over it with me if you don't mind. Look at verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also would the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. 
When you see the when you see the buzzards flying in South Georgia or in North Georgia, wherever you see them, and you know they're dangling around, you know that below them, you know there's a perished animal. When you see this coming, you know they're good. he's going to give us signs. And when we see this, we'll all see it from every vantage point. There's not a place on the earth in which this will not be seen. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. These are the birds flying over. When you see this happening, you know something's about to happen. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they shall see the sun coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels to the great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. One way to look at Revelation chapter 1 in the first few verses we just saw a quote from, we just read from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. And following, we just read from Matthew chapter 24, the words of Jesus himself and what's called the Olivet Discourse, speaking of his revelation of himself at the end times. In Revelation chapter 2 verse 1 it says, Witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. We have the word of God in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 and the testimony of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 24 and 20. Uh, seven and fo- verses 27 and following. There it is. The Lord spoke of it. There's no difference. It's just that the Lord Himself spoke of it and the Son spoke of it and His earthly sojourn in the Gospels. He is coming again and everybody will see Him. But who is coming? The one who was pierced. The one who is pierced. That speaks of what was spoken of and prophesied in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And we'll close with this. We're not going to get to go as far as I want to this morning. But I want to get to a point here for a minute. Application. Zechariah. Go look in the front of your Bible if you're not really familiar with where that's located. And I'm not being funny about that either. Just go look and see because I know it's one of the minor prophet books and sometimes it's hard just to go right to it. Take some time to do that if you will. Um, so we can be there together. Will you do it? It's important that you get over there if you don't mind because I'd like for you to see something. It's one of the most controversial verses in the Bible and the one that causes a great deal of um, conflict and consternation for unconverted Jews is Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. It says, I will... Do this, and they will look upon me. Okay? Even when they translated the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. They took out the Hebrew word that was used for pierced and replaced it with a different Hebrew word in order to fit their thinking. But the Hebrew word from which it comes 
means to thrust through with a weapon. The Septuagint replaced it with a word that means to insult, to wound by insult. It just means um, it's like insulting somebody and going, man, they just shot me down. That kind of thing. Said something insulting to you or about you. But the word means, when it says pierced, it means to stab or thrust through with a weapon. The reason it caused so much trouble for them is this. It is obvious from the way it appears in the text and the verses that precede it, this is God speaking of himself. And God is saying of himself, I'm going to be pierced, and they will look upon it. And they said, wait a minute now, God is a spirit. How is it that God, being a spirit, can be pierced? You can't pierce a spirit. And so there's been so much contorting and, you know, all this going on to make that word say something other than what it clearly says about who it clearly speaks of. Because if you go look back up, and this is why I want you to see it, look at verse 4. It says, In that day, says the Lord. And in your Bibles, Lord there is capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. Three, there are three primary names um, for God in um, the, um, your versions of the Bible that are spoken of in the Old Testament. One is Lord, which would be Adonai. The other one is God, which is Elohim. And the third one, which is the one we have here, is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And it pronounced and means Jehovah. It is the existing one, the one true God. And Jehovah says, look at it now in verse 4, In that day, says the Lord, I will. And then you move on down in the text a little bit further. And in verse 6, it says, In that day, I will. And then you move on to verse 9 and it says, In that day I will. And then you move into verse 10 and it says, In this, in that, and I will. And then it says, And they will look upon me. Who is this but Jehovah Himself saying that I am going to be pierced and I'm going to return again and everybody who pierced me is going to look upon me. So, Jesus is God. And the only way that you can pierce Him is if God, who is a spirit, does what? Takes on human flesh. And when He takes on human flesh, He was pierced. Now look at John chapter 19. Look at John chapter 19. It says in verse 34, John 19, 34, But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows he's telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done, that the Scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another Scripture says, They shall look on him whom they've pierced. Jesus is God and He became a man. And in His humanity was qualified to pay for the sins of humanity. Hallelujah. 
So when he says, look upon one that they have pierced, we're going from the Old Testament, we're coming to the Gospels, and we're going to the way it's going to turn out in the end, and everybody's going to know. They're going to look upon the one whom they pierced. And this is why they'll be mourning. They'll be mourning because they'll realize we crucified God the Son. We didn't crucify a prophet. We didn't crucify a fanatic. Although he was a prophet and he wasn't a fanatic, we crucified one who claimed to be God and has proven now beyond a shadow of a doubt by appearing to everyone in his glory that he is God. He's the one whom they pierced. You can contort and do whatever you want to with Scripture, but the best thing to do is to take it what it says and recognize that God says what he means and at the same token he means what he says. Well, what should that mean to us in way of practical application? Just quickly, turn to Acts chapter 16, if you will. Verse 25 and hold there. Just hold there. Acts chapter 16, verse 25. And then go over to, if you will, 1 Peter chapter 3. I don't want you to miss this if you don't mind. If you'll just hang with me for just a second. This is really important. Um. 1 Peter 3, 7, the ladies use this. Um, I'm sorry, it's 2 Peter 3, 7. You know what? I got mixed up. It is, it is 1 Peter 4 7. I wrote it down as 3 7 in my notes. It's 1 Peter 4 7. It lays, the ladies looked at this yesterday briefly. But the end of all things is at hand. Okay? If we just stop there, there's a colon there, we semicolon. If we just stop there and we just said, okay. Now, you don't know what the rest of it says. It's just pretend like you've never read the Bible and never read this text before. And we just say, okay, Jared, the end of all things is at hand. I mean, it's, it's at hand. It's imminent. Christ is coming. And you say, there's more to that verse. You fill it in. And here's what we would say. Let's run around and work as hard as we can and labor as fast as we can and do as much as we can because He's coming back and the end of all things is at hand. So let's get up on our feet and get going. But God says to get on our knees. Look what it says. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Now, the information that we got out of the gate should evoke a fervent prayer life. Now, that's God's call. Because why? Because whatever we stand to do when we get up off our knees is only empowered and as good as uh, what we did on our knees. Then we walk in power and strength that God supplies rather than you and I. In my hand I hold here. This is turning out to be, this so far this is 12 pages. And the reason it's so long, it's 11 pages right now. The reason it's so long is, is what this is, and I, I, sold, I told you, I have to apologize to you, but last week, a couple weeks ago, I told you I was going to give it to you last week. But I got to working on it and it became bigger than I thought it was going to be. And I had to go back and draw back from a bunch of emails that I've kept and archived and all of that. And that takes me a long time. 
So then I was going to give it to you this Sunday, and then I realized it grew again. So what this is, is this a, most of it's Scripture. So what it is, is it's things that we've sensed the Lord has told us to pray, and the prayer request below it that has arisen from the passage of Scripture, dating all the way back to when we first were planted as a church. And I'm going to give it to you, Lord willing, Lord willing, next Sunday. Still working on it. I'm sorry. But every time I think I'm finished, then all of a sudden and I get Jill to prove it, and I said, Jill, go back and look, because I know I... And so uh, uh, she goes over and looks at it, and uh, then something else will come up, and God will remind me of something that, I, that I, I needed to put on there. There's a couple of them on here, as a matter of fact, from, from a couple of members of our church. And uh, we're going to put this up and get it in your hands. I would just appeal to you to this. The end of all things... Is a hand. Therefore, let's be serious and watchful in our prayers. And when I give it to you, I appreciate the fact that maybe we could together, you do what the Lord leads you to do, but together begin to petition God together as a fellowship, things that He has told us. This is a stewardship for me. I mean, for me, to not do this is disobedience. And so... Uh, I'm not saying that for you. I'm saying it is for me. Okay. But to say, let's be serious and watchful in prayer. And then when we get up off of our knees, then we'll be empowered with His strength and power when we get on our feet. We're so given to action. And we're action-oriented, action-minded people. And if we're not careful, we'll operate in our own strength instead of His. And if we do that, we'll run out quick. This prince is coming back. He's the one whom we pierced. My sin, yours. I remember we used to have an evangelism training thing that we did at our former church. And we would show people a part of it as a picture of people standing in contemporary dress at the base of the cross with Jesus. And all you saw was his feet from the picture because the focus was on the people that were standing below it. And all the people who were standing below it, dressed like I am this morning, had mallets and spikes and execution tools in their hands. And they were standing there looking to communicate the fact that it wasn't an angry Roman mob or religious Jews that put him, put him there. It was our sin that put him there. And his love for us that kept him there. Not the spikes. And when we're reminded of that, we look upon the one whom we've pierced. We realize he's coming in future glory. The first time he came in, came in obscurity and a couple of shepherds found out about it through angelic visitation. The second time he comes, everybody's going to know it. Everybody's going to know it. It won't be obscurity. It won't be obscurity. And so let's pray. And as we pray, we'll practice in power what we pray because the Holy Spirit will empower us. We'll start to give credit and acknowledgement to Him and rely upon Him and not upon us. Part of that preparation work, part of that preparation grace is to participate in an act of worship that we're about to participate in, which is the Lord's Supper. And Brian's going to come and lead us, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper. We remember His death till He comes.